Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. We are recording today from Lake Wenatchee, Washington, in the North Cascades, where I'm enjoying the schooly life. New York City, where our producer, Lindsay Hooper, is based, and Chicago, Illinois, one of the flattest places on the planet where our guest, Stephanie Kermer, is based. Stephanie, who, what, and why are you? Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I am a data scientist, and I am also a sociologist. And those two things are sort of uh, aspects of my personality and aspects of my uh, educational background that I bring to the work that I'm doing now. I am work at Saturn Cloud, which is a company enabling uh, scaled up, parallelized, and um, and just generally more accessible data science with Python and Dask, and uh, I'm sure that we'll get to talk about that. But those those are the things that describe my my data in my professional life. Interesting. Uh, Python is obviously a very well known language for data science. It's also one of the more popular languages for PostgreSQL, the open source database, which I happen to specialize in. Uh, could you uh, repeat? Is it Dask? Yes, Dask, D-A. And what is that exactly? So it's a framework that builds upon the foundation of Python that allows you to take the uh, data science packages that you're already familiar with in the Python ecosystem, pandas, scikit-learn, that kind of thing, take those APIs, and then they have built uh, parallelization infrastructure and architecture so that you can use those same sort of um, sort of coding techniques, but enable parallelizing your tasks, parallelizing your data. So that might mean taking your data set that would have been a pandas data frame. If you make it a Dask data frame, now you've broken it into discrete chunks that can be accessed as one, but distributed into multiple machines. So you can use data that's much larger than anything your single machine can hold. Or you can do delayed tasks into uh, task graphs that allow you to run, say, 500 different uh, machine learning models at the same time, different, um, say, hyperparameter searches or ensembles or things like that, instead of waiting for one to finish before you start the next, before you start the next, and having to keep it all on one machine. Now those that work can be distributed across many machines. So those two sort of twin aspects of Dask make it possible to really um, advance both the, the speed of your machine learning tasks and the complexity. And Dask is also open source? Mm-hmm. Yes, Dask is Excellent. completely open source and free to use. Um, our company as Saturn Cloud really tries to uh, democratize access to the compute resources that can really let it shine, give people the ability to get you know, the GPUs or larger machines and that kind of thing that then uh, can run Dask on. But Dask itself, the, the, the framework is, is totally open source. Excellent. So, so is Saturn Cloud the primary author of Dask or the maintainer or just a contributor? No, we're just contributors. We have um, members of our team who are on the Dask um, maintainers sort of committee, but there are other companies that also uh, provide sort of entrances to Dask or infrastructure to help people use Dask. Um, we are excited to be a part of the broader community and glad that we can make a contribution to the, the open source project. But it's definitely not just us. There's there's lots and lots of amazing people contributing to to the project. 
Excellent. So you mentioned that you have a degree, you're a data scientist, and you have a degree in sociology. Is that correct? Right. Yes. That was that was my graduate work was in sociology. Now, that's kind of a, a interesting cross-section, right? Uh, I've long considered that uh, one of the most beneficial marketing people would also have, say, degrees in psychology to understand uh, how to properly engage a potential you know, consumer of marketing and advertising. How does uh, having this cross-section of sociology and data science, unpack that for us. How does it, what are we doing with that? I think it makes me a very different uh, sort of data scientist than someone coming out of a pure STEM background because uh, I tend to approach problems and questions in slightly different ways. I tend to ask different questions when faced with a new, you know, data set or a new problem. I've done data science in social policy space as well as in other areas in industrial data science and um, now sort of more in this uh, software product side. And, um, and I really think that it gives me the ability to bring a diverse perspective into the room, asking questions about how our work, how our models affect the end users, people who are going to be um, actually interacting with the, the data science tasks that we've done, the analyses that we've created. Um, I think a lot more about that than um, because, of, uh, because I've been trained to think about it. And, and I really am, um, yeah, I think, I think diverse perspectives from this academic angle, as well as from you know, all walks of life, that kind of thing, coming into the space of data science, into the profession is, is really beneficial for us to do better work. Interesting. So is there, is there a practical application that you can give? I mean, obviously, without giving away any secrets here, but uh, is there a case study or, or something where you can describe how your view mm-hmm. has benefited over the strictly scientific view? And, and the reason I bring this up is that we are at a crossroads in society where the person has become the product. And mega corporations are literally deriving their ability to generate profit off of the human condition, not the human production. Mm. And whether or not that's a good or bad thing, that, that's not really what we're here for, but it is something that's happening. And I'm kind of curious if you're asking yourselves those types of questions in terms of the data that is being collected with that you work with, or if I'm missing something. No, you're right. And I think it's a little cliched now, but we, we always hear this sort of adage that you thought about whether you could do something, but not whether you should. And I find myself being in, in past you know roles, past organizations, I have definitely found myself being voice of well, we can do this kind of model or we can collect this information about say a customer or something of that nature, but we need to really think about what that means broadly, not just for this single you know, narrow data science problem, but for what our organization is then gonna be responsible for. Data security, I think has a lot of cross sections with sociology when we're thinking about the needs of the individual and how much we are um, taking responsibility for. I think that the idea that we can give someone incredibly micro-targeted, say, ad influences or something like that is 
is fascinating on a scientific level, but gives pause on a broader social level and sometimes on an ethical level. I think those are, and I, I like, like you said, I don't want to give, give away secrets, but I have definitely been in the room where I was saying, yes, we can collect this data about a customer and put it in our database and use it in our model, but we shouldn't, and this is why we shouldn't. Um, and people would, it's not that people don't care in the data science profession, it's not that people don't care about people's privacy or about the, you know, sort of bounds of ethics. It's sometimes that they haven't you know, been put in position that, that has been brought to their attention in the past, or they haven't, you know, spent many years just be studying academically the experience of humans in groups, in society, in the institutions of our lives. And that, that um, that's a sort of perspective I can bring. Um, I, I studied the, inter, the interaction between individuals and mental health care when I was in graduate school. And the idea that we don't think about, we think of, of people as customers in a medical system, but it's really not the same. We think of people, people really are uh, in, in, in positions of, of handing over power over themselves, data that is collected in the, in the healthcare system as well as in you know, other sort of, sort of settings isn't just given necessarily freely with full informed consent with the customer or the participant knowing exactly what's gonna happen. And so understanding how people interact with those institutions, like if you don't give us this data, you can't use this service. People might feel that might be coercive. It, there, there's, there's lots of stuff that goes on between human beings, institutions that collect their data and then the ways that that data gets used that needs to be taken very seriously. It needs to be thought about very carefully. So I, I think about this a lot. I, um, even in the area when I, when I worked in industrial data science where I was you know, predicting failures of heavy machinery, I would tell people it is about people. It is about the human beings because if I predict this, this failure correctly, someone who's working on you know that, that piece of equipment won't have to go climbing all over it in dirty, dangerous you know situation just to find out nothing was wrong or the you know piece of equipment won't break down causing someone to be you know, stranded out in the middle of nowhere. And so human beings are at the core of all of this stuff. It really is, I think interesting to um, to realize that that none of this is in a vacuum, none of this is absent of impact on human beings. And if it is is if it really doesn't have an impact on human beings, then we shouldn't be doing it because then what is it for? So, yeah. It's an interesting perspective. I mean, there's all you brought up academics a couple a couple times in that, and throughout my career, I have found that there is a distinct line between the academic line of thought and let's say the commercial or the marketplace uh, line of thought. Um, and they're crossing over now because when you take data and when you have so much of it, I mean, I don't think that people realize, and this is just an example of how much data that credit card companies actually have on you. Yeah. Um, or even in a more interesting fashion, someone like an Amazon, um, because at least credit card companies are heavily regulated in terms of what they can do with that data, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, an Amazon, depending on what is happening, of course, but depending on what is happening with Amazon, they may or may not be all that regulated. 
And it, there's a question of, like you said, you know, how does it impact the person? And I can imagine you're sitting in this room and you've got, you know, 20 data scientists. And let's just be honest, all of them, but you and maybe one other is a male. <laughs> and they are, you know, as, as males do, as I am a male, we get hyper-focused on whatever particular problem we're trying to solve, especially as a scientist. And, you know, we say, wouldn't it be great if, and you step up and you say, well, certainly from an academic perspective, that would be interesting. But from a deployment to the marketplace perspective, this is really dangerous because of X. Mm -hmm. Or would it be really dangerous because of X, depending on, you know, the situation. And I'm just imagining the, the eyebrow twitch from the data scientist, right? From, from the guys like, you know, I don't really care about that because that's not the problem I'm trying to solve. And what you have done is you've introduced a new problem that's actually farther down the line uh, than their problem, uh, except that inevitably it's your problem that's going to actually end up impacting people. And I, what's that like? Am I describing an experience that you have had? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that that it's it's a very interesting sort of seat to be in in that room because I do have, you know, there 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 are ways to bring up these challenges that are not just this is you know ethically you know inappropriate for and you have I, I think whether whether it's um whether it's with good or not that you have to do this I feel like you really have to bring it back to a business impact if I'm going to tell somebody if we you know we shouldn't collect this level of you know granular information about individuals because what if there's a data breach there's always a risk of a data breach someone leaves the s3 bucket un, you know unprotected and then we're in trouble would we want the front page of the newspaper to say company X was collecting this data about their customers. And then you think also about um, would we be able to say, say if, if, if company is subject to GDPR, would we be able to delete this if a customer came to us and said, wipe me out, I would like to be forgotten. Then of course the GDPR regulations require that you make that possible. Um, it would it you know would it destroy the model if we had data that we couldn't back out or something like that? Um, it, there are a lot of different scenarios where you end up coming to that conversation where where at least part of it is I wouldn't want this collected on me. I wouldn't want this kind of um, model created about me. I wouldn't want you know in it and you, you're thinking of your, your own experiences, for example. Uh, you wouldn't want public data to be, you know, made available, it, or you wouldn't want software to be created where you can't block an unwanted, uh, you know, communication from someone else. Social media examples, things like that. If I'm in the room as a social scientist, as a woman in the field, and of course uh, we're we're an underrepresented group, um, and that is is a very real situation. Uh, I think that that I can come into it saying, you know, I, I get that you that there is this other, you know, this academic problem that we want to solve, but we live in the real world and we are 
um, everything we choose to do or choose not to do takes on some level of risk and potential responsibility, potential liability, and not thinking about those things is going to be, you know, to our detriment down the line. Um, I think I have an easier time maybe speaking about this in the rooms that I am in because I'm more senior, you know, participant in, you know, senior in the field. But uh, certainly when I was new to data science or new to, you know, the professional world in general, that um, it was a lot harder to, to put those, those perspectives out there. And so I think that's one of the reasons that it's so important that people from uh, underrepresented backgrounds and women, people of color and, and whole people from other walks of life are in those rooms and have the ability to grow in the organization and the ability to, to move up the ranks. Because just being in the room doesn't mean you have the uh, privilege or the, the political capital to speak up and make an unpopular point. And, and I think I, uh, I feel a lot of responsibility to make those points and to, to like speak that, that uh, sort of unpopular uh, perspective when I, when I have it, when it's necessary. I don't want to be the we can never do anything person. I don't want to be um, tearing down ideas unnecessarily. But when it matters, when I think it's really important, when it's the battle I want to pick, I feel like I should and, and try to. I, I would agree. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is that everybody has a bias. It doesn't matter who you are, your background, your race, whatever. You have a bias. It's inherent to how you were brought up, how you were raised, your workplace experiences, your childhood experiences, and it creates uh, a thought process. And to be truly equitable, uh, especially to citizens, you have to be able to accept not agree with, but accept those biases for what they are and then work through them to find the equitable decision based on whatever you're trying to deliver. Um, I'd like to take a quick moment. This is kind of a left turn for our listeners. I just want to remind everyone that I am recording from a lake. So you are going to hear the joys of children. You are going to hear the joys of geese. You are going to hear people walking on granulated sand. Part of this is because we are now in a life because of COVID where many of us are not stranded to the confines of a cereal box under uh, fluorescent lighting. We are actually able to experience the world for what they are. And people have learned through Zoom meetings and you know, you've got your child run through and you apologize. Don't ever apologize for having a child. They are the future of this world. Enjoy them. You know, Obviously, if they start banging on the keyboard, send them out of the room. But people as a whole, I think that we all need to kind of stretch what we're used to and our biases of what is professional, what is considerate, and accept that we all have lives, we all have family, it may not be blood related, but we all have some kind of interaction that we're having in our life. And then if we embrace these differences, we are all going to be better for it. Now, back to our podcast content. Um, you know, the, there is a, a morality and ethical consideration with collecting data, and I, I want to, we've kind of discussed that a bit, but I kind of like to kind of boil down a little bit into some more practical things, uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we have situations where they say become a, 
uh, and go to a boot camp and become a data scientist in 12 weeks. Now, I'm not a data scientist. I wouldn't pretend to be a data scientist, but I am a database expert. So I am very good at understanding how to wrangle data into something producible and usable. And I also work with a lot of developers, and I have interviewed hundreds and worked with thousands who have attended these boot camps. Here's the deal. You cannot become a data scientist in 12 weeks of a boot camp. You cannot become a real developer in a boot camp of 12 weeks. It's impossible. Can you maybe get a job and be a code monkey? Yes, that's possible. But why this matters in this podcast is that many data scientists, many jobs that I see that are listed as we are looking for a data scientist, what they're actually looking for is someone to write macros for an Excel spreadsheet to analyze that type of data. So when you're thinking about, and, and I hope you didn't cringe at that because I know that that it it, it there's a particular like it's like when you stand up and it's hard to explain what I do for a living. And a lot of people will just say, Oh, he's the computer guy. Like my grandmother, right? Oh, he's a computer guy. No, I'm not. I'm not a computer guy, but it makes it easier for her to kind of get her mind around what we do. Um, you and I both know that there's a big difference between a real data scientist and someone who is, you know, writing Excel spreadsheet macros and analyzing large spreadsheets of data that actually belong in a database, not in Excel in the first place, um, and say a data analyst or a business intelligence analyst or something like that. So from a practical perspective and from your experience, can you break down just Real short, what are the actual differences? What is a, a real data scientist? What is a real data uh, analyst? What is, you know, those types of things? It's a really good question. And it's, uh, it's a very uh, sort of complicated topic in the data science world because data science is a very wide umbrella. And a lot of people are trying to de sort of define what really is data science. Um, are we... You know, we're moving, you know, we have machine learning engineers, we have machine learning DevOps, and we have, uh, you know, just sort of broad umbrella data scientists, we, you know, data analyst is different. But as you rightly point out, a lot of times people writing the job description haven't the faintest idea what that difference is. Um, so data scientist can be a, applied as a title to a role because the person doing the hiring will find it more prestigious in their own organization if they have a data scientist. They don't actually have work for a data scientist, but they have the need for the status that comes with the title. Um, to actually answer the question though, I, uh, my, the best explanation I've, I've found with the, the difference between data analyst and a data scientist is that a data scientist should be ready to uh, receive data in whatever gnarly form you might find it. They, if you have, um, you know, a, a pile of old CSV files, they should be able to handle that. You have an API that you need to hit for, uh, you know, for large volume data, they should be able to do that. If you have your data in a large database, in um, relational database, or in, or in NoSQL database, or anything in between, they should be prepared for for all the ways that data can kind of come to their their desk or can they, they can go out and find it. 
data analyst, I don't think that's an appropriate expectation for. I think a data analyst should be prepared to handle reasonably orderly, reasonably tabular data. Um, they should probably have the ability to understand uh, relational databases and SQL. I think that's a fair expectation for a data analyst. Uh, but when it comes to, to the sort of expectation of how much independence your data science versus analysts will have, I think data scientist needs to be more independent, more able to go out and frame the problem, identify the data that's needed, get the data, do the whole, the whole thing all the way through. Now, the element of actually predictive modeling and machine learning is also generally considered part of the data science umbrella and not the data analyst umbrella, but I think that that is to some degree changing over time. I think some data analysts are sort of dipping their toes into the area of building models and that kind of thing. Um, I don't have a, you know, quote unquote traditional data science background. I don't have a STEM degree. I don't have um, a lot of that sort of thing, but I did study data analytics and uh, you know multivariate analysis and some things like that, statistics in graduate school because sociology is, is built around a lot of data and analysis, a particular quantitative sociology, which is what I did. And um, so I've had that foundation and a little bit of coding, a little bit of you know sort of touching that. And I really started out in data analysis and worked my way up by asking for more challenging projects, taking on you know courses in my spare time, studying, practicing, doing side projects. And it took quite a while to develop into you know the position I'm in now, say. Uh, I certainly don't feel as though I am a, an expert. Data science is an incredibly large field and that's one of the things I love about it. I love the fact that, that I am never going to get to the point where I'm done learning the data science. I'm never going to get to the point where there's not another technique another area of data science that I could explore. Um, only in the last couple of years, I've been learning um, more about the concepts around deep learning and libraries in that framework through what I've been doing at Saturn and my previous role. And I, I think that to, to be a really successful data scientist, you need to be prepared to be literally a lifelong learner, not in you know the sort of cliche, you know, cross stitch on the wall kind of way, but you have to be ready to come in every single day, not knowing what's going to be put in front of you at the office, not knowing the way to solve the problem when it's handed to you, but being eager and willing to take that, figure out the, you know, how to frame the problem, what data is required, what kind of yeah, algorithm might be the right approach or ask people and get, you know, do all of that exploration. And then three weeks later, you've put out a model and you start it all over again. And there is no uh, plateauing, there's no coasting in data science if you're really, um, you know, continuing to progress in your career. So I hope that that, that kind of helps clarify it, but, but you're absolutely right that it's, uh, it's not 12 weeks and done. You can get the foundations, say, from a boot camp that you might need, especially if you have professional experience and some sort of adjacent field, if you've had some coding experience or you've had some math experience and you can kind of build that up together. But a, a boot camp is perhaps gets you in the door so where you can, which is where you can really start learning. You start learning it on the job, at least in my experience. The data science you learn in a classroom is not the same as the data science you will do for a business or for an academic organization. And the technologies you learned in your first year, say, of grad school or the very beginning of your academic career 
are going to be obsolete by the time you get done. And you need to learn the skills of how to continue learning in order to really be successful and have a full long career in data science. Learning one technology and calling this, it good will never, will, will not work. This, you just brought up a, a huge bucket of great points. I, I can't stress this enough. Um, and, you know, this is not a scripted show, but we do have bullet points that we try to touch on. And I'm kind of going to flip the script a little bit here. Um, you touched on something that is a struggle that I find in a lot of technical fields, and that is professional development. Mm -hmm. You can't, the IT, and it's not even really IT, but the IT industry as a whole uh, is an interesting problem when it comes to professional development because there are a lot of people out there who want to learn let's say get their linux certification and go be a linux systems admin well here's your problem now you need to know kubernetes why is that my problem as an employer now, there's all kinds of reasons why it should be part of my problem. That's not the, the argument I'm making, nor am I saying that an employer should not be involved. But what I am saying is that as a professional and explicitly a white-collar professional, we have a duty to ourselves to improve ourselves, to keep ourselves relevant, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, you can't. The way you came into this was doing side projects, a lot of self-taught, a lot of self-learning, and I sure, I'm sure you still do that because the technology is consistently changing. And there are areas of our market when I'm talking about the broad global data and science and, and you know networking and security and all that type of stuff, you know, the bits and bytes binary market that we're in where you certainly can sit there, do your job, and have a reasonable career. But the question you have to ask yourself is how many Novell Netware administrators are still out in the wild? <laughs> now, there's a lot of people that have no idea what I just said. I'm old enough. I do. A point. I do. Well, here's, that's how I started. I actually started by reading books for a company called Pals Books, which is the largest freestanding bookstore in the world. They're in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I worked at their technical bookstore, and I ended up somehow convincing the boss that I could administrate their Nobel Netware network. Now, here's the thing. I learned it from a boot camp. That boot camp was a book. Books don't tell you what happens in real life, period. They tell you an interpretation of what might happen and what you should do if it happens. It doesn't have an ability to calculate for the variables that you're running a coaxial network. For those that don't know what that is, look it up. It was terrible. Uh, that you have any number of different people trying to access the network from any other number of different technologies that are all interrelated whether it be a Clipper database or a DBase database or a custom Perl script to read DBF files, right? So it's important that we bring this up because I no longer 
administrative novel network network. And I, in fact, I haven't since that time in my life. I moved on uh, into DBase and then into Postgres 95. And I've learned a lot of things along the way. I have become a professional author. I have written a, bo- a book, contributed to multiple books, published articles, uh, run conferences. We do this podcast. None of that was done by sitting still and assuming that somehow something great would happen. It was done because I pursued a betterment of myself. And it's the same with you. You pursued a betterment of yourself, and you are now in this uniquely interesting position. And I mean that. I, it's, it, as we're talking, the, the idea between sociology and data, to me, makes perfect sense. Absolute perfect sense. But I wonder how many people out there that are dealing with data wish they could kind of shoo you under the rug because of the problems. That I, in fact, they're not even problems, they're opportunities, right? You bring about opportunities for a better world because you're studying and focused on the sociological aspects of this data manipulation in science. But if you're not particularly care about that, and I don't mean that these people don't care about people, but they don't, it, it, it may be abstract, right? People are what happens when I go home. Data is what happens when I'm at my terminal. So they're abstracted from each other, and yet they're totally and completely and utterly interconnected. And this brings me to my next point. 15% of data scientists are women. And the percentage of people of color is very low. Now, we have a question. And we kind of touched on it earlier when it comes to bias and systemic bias and things like this, which really does exist. Why is it important that we have opposing second? Well, I shouldn't say opposing. We're, we're hopefully not opposing, mm-hmm. uh, but men and women, and uh, you know, African Americans and Asians, and all the all these different backgrounds. Why is it important that we bring their scientific minds? Outside of the socioeconomic, you know, perspective, obviously, you know, when you talk about people of color, you're talking about a situation where there might be higher poverty rates or something like that. I think there's an obvious providing an equitable path forward for them uh, is a good thing. Um, But is is a bigger picture kind of thing. Why is it important that if there are 50 data scientists in the in the room? Let's say at least, and and I'm just throwing numbers here, at least are 40% female, and of that, and of the 100%, at least 50 are equitably different and not necessarily, you know, white. Why is that important? Well, you make a good point about the sort of social impact, but in my experience, that's not particularly convincing people making about um, how organizations are structured and how hiring is done. I think um, I think it's important. Be, I, we, we see so many examples of this, how, how sort of uh, blinkered you can get when you're only um, exposed to the interests or concerns or um, uh, market sort of interactions of people who are just like you. We remember, Apple Health coming out with no menstrual tracking options. Like that's, that. no woman in their right mind would have let that go out the door that way, right? 
Right. Hold on. I I have to interject. I actually didn't know of this problem. Apple, one of the largest and most profitable companies in the world, has more money than most countries in cash and is world-renowned. For their products, quality, ease of use, and, and by the way, I can't stand their products, but is world-renowned for these things, for protecting the user, released a health application that literally eliminated one of the most impactful health conditions of a woman from the age of about anywhere from 9 to 12 to 50. They just didn't include that? That was not one of the features that they included when they initially released Apple Health. It is the thing that they eventually added after quite a bit of uproar and and uh, and pull and, and pushback from from customers. But but I think that that's that's a very public and very um, well known example. I think of just the sort of situation that that you might encounter in smaller degrees. I've also run into. There's an example that that I see a lot as I have friends that this is experienced directly. If you require names in a login or registration on your website to have three characters, that leaves out tremendous swaths of the world. And that's the sort of thing that it, it seems like a purely technical question. Oh, what should the validation on this field be? Oh, let's just use this validation that we've got lying around or whatever. But but having someone in the room whose last name was Lee, L-I, for example, would really make a difference in how that product was designed and how that data was handled and how the experience would be and all of the, that those are, those are um, problems that are not just problems for the individual customer who is experiencing that. They're problems for your business because your business is excluding people who have money that spends just like everyone else's and you're, you're risking your reputation among whole populations who may not be personally impacted by this problem, but will obviously know someone who is. Um, I think that that's a huge issue. I think that there's risk involved in not having a broad spectrum of experience, backgrounds, perspectives in the room, because you make those sort of boneheaded blind decisions just because you didn't have someone in the room to say what are you doing then your company looks bad your reputation as a company looks bad you're obviously leaving money on the table and there's no reason for any of it there's no reason that this has to happen it's not there are plenty of data science let's say women in the data science field i know lots and lots and lots of women in data science but i also know that they have uh struggled with the you know we we talk we talk about our experiences with the recruiters with hiring with our experiences in the workplace feeling like are we being heard are we being respected are we getting the same opportunities for growth as everyone else and we we know where you go and where you don't go and which organizations are not going to give you the sort of uh, treatment and respect that you deserve and data scientists in general are in high demand. Our field is very, uh, you know, it has, has a certain amount of social prestige attached to it. And we, um, there, there, there's, there's more roles for data scientists out there than there are data scientists, especially experienced ones. And so you don't have the luxury of just, just dispensing with the, the women in your, your, your talent pool or the women who you actually hire. 
um, you 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 need us, and that's I think I think a big thing that I, that I like to to really put out there. It's it's not necessarily about a pipeline issue. There are lots of women in data science. There may be a need for a broader issue of just having more data scientists being trained effectively, and that might be a thing. But um, it's it's the hiring, it's the retention, it's giving women a place in an organization where they can grow, develop, and feel like they can build a career. Um, that I think is really the biggest key. And this is all speaking just for about women because that's the area, of course, that I have personal experience with. But um, but I think that this is true of other groups as well. Um, I gave a talk a couple of years ago where I talked about some of the, the lessons for data science from the sociological angle. And one of the issues that I, that I mentioned that I, I brought up some data about was that there, the percent of, of math PhDs or people in STEM PhDs that are people of color is quite low. It's not necessarily low for women. I mean, it's 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 not uh, proportionate to the population, but the percentage of, of math and science and STEM PhDs and statistics PhDs that are, that, are, that are issued to people of color every year is single digits. And that means if you are writing your job description, which is a thing that I have worked with a number of my past or companies with and, and, and tried to, to make things clearer for them, if you require that STEM PhD because that's your shorthand for, well, this person must know their, their math, you are actively already cutting your candidate pool to single digit percentages of people of color for no reason. There is absolutely no reason to require a PhD for a data scientist hire. It's bananas to me. I don't, I, I think people still do it because they don't really understand what they need a data scientist to do and what the job actually is. So they can't list the qualifications that would be applicable. So they just get lazy and they say, oh, we'll just, we'll just require them to have a, a STEM PhD. And then when asked, I find a lot of these people will say, oh, well, you know, for the right candidate, we would just leave that out. We would, we would overlook that. And then I say, how are you going to find the right candidate if you have already told them not to apply because you've already set these requirements up? They're not, they're not interested in your organization if you already put up that barrier and you've already lost. Um, and I think that that's, that's some of my thoughts on the, the sort of gender imbalance in data science, which is, which is pretty appalling, but also the, the issues around the broader diversity of the field. Um, hiring managers, business, you know, sort of institutions, HR departments are really, there's a lot that, that needs to change in those areas. So, and, and I'm not trying to make light because you are clearly very passionate about this and I would agree with you, but I just want to get something off, you know, on the table. You are in fact a woman. I am, right. A cisgender, okay. <laughs> identifying woman. You can tell by looking at me. It's Okay. <laughs> Um, no, and actually this is important and it, it actually goes all the way back to, to the beginning when we were talking about bias in general. And I'll give you an example from my world. Now, it, it, if you look out in the world, everybody likes to yell about um, sexism in the scientific fields, whether it be computer science or whatever. Um, but the reality is those biases exist globally. It's not um, something that is unique or even particularly rampant, any more rampant than it is in any other field. And I mean, to, sh to give a very uh, simple example, 
um, you know, there's not a whole lot of women doing heavy lifting, physically heavy lifting. Um, for obvious reasons, right? It's a biological thing. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be provided equitable tools to do the job. It's just that, for example, you know, I can relatively easily just pick up 250 pounds. Um, it, granted, I can't carry it, but I could lift it. Um, well, I just have to put so it when we, can... we talked about it at the beginning, I have a, a, a social, I, I have, I have a fondness for, for weightlifting in my spare time. I can also lift 250 pounds, but uh, just for you. Well, I, I, know I actually I know did that's bring a, that up. Contrary to your point, but I just had to say. No, no, it's okay. And, and certainly there are definitely uh, women who can, and I don't want to take away from that frankly just a little bit terrifying for me uh statement um but um no absolutely and you did mention that you're you're big into fitness i was actually curious about that are you um is it crossfit is it are you mma or are you just big into like lifting and cardio what is it that you're particularly oh, enjoying yeah, just, just lifting i started weightlifting when i was uh, just started college when i was 18 and i uh did some uh some training of different different kinds of powerlifting and uh, Olympic style lifting, not not competitively, but uh, but it's always been a thing that I've I've kept doing, and I I try to these days I'm I'm really interested in functional fitness and um and sort of strength in that regard because I'm getting getting older and discovering joints and things that I hadn't had to think about in my twenties. Um, and I just really, I think it's extremely valuable for mental health, physical health. I think that it is, it has made a tremendous difference in my ability to, uh, to sort of cope with the stresses of the rest of life and that kind of thing. And it's very empowering, literally, to be able to walk into the gym and lift the heaviest thing you've ever lifted before. And, you know, if you get it on video, all the better. And to to feel the accomplishment that comes from that. I think I don't have to have all my accomplishment, all of my sort of uh uh, feelings of, of growth and progress to be wrapped up in my work. I like having another part of my life, a part of my life where there's something else that I am aspiring to working towards and, and giving my all to every week. Well, hey, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that uh, in specifically the mental health aspect, right? I think that there is definitely a situation in fact, I've known many, I've known many, many people, male and female, who purportedly suffer from mental health issues. And, and I'm not making light of mental health issues. They are certainly an important problem. Um, but when you look at their lifestyle, you wonder if it's become a vicious cycle. They're coding 16 hours a day. They code into the night. Then they game. Then they get up the next morning if they slept at all. They're not getting sunshine. They're not getting vitamin D. They're not going on hikes. They're not going on walks they, they're, There's or lifting or whatever it is that would bring about the body's natural resistance to things that damage it. And that is something that a lot of people don't realize is that the human body, now I can't cure everything, of course, but it has a lot of natural ability to assist in fighting depression through endorphins, fighting pain through endorphins and dopamine and things like that, through anti-inflammatory, through natural remedies. 
And a lot of people don't get everything is connected in that manner. Right. You wonder, you know, why am I feeling so down? Well, maybe it's because you've been sitting on your damn couch for the last three weeks drinking. They don't make that connection. Yeah, I, you know? you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's, it, uh, if, even if there is an underlying, say, mental health issue that is, you know, that isn't going to be solved by physical activity and keeping a healthier lifestyle, it's certainly the cheapest, easiest way to try to start. And if you ex- you exercise, you know, worked on your daily life sort of experiences, and yet it still hasn't solved the problem, then perhaps you need to, you know, seek a clinical solution. But but it's it's so little effort to just give it a try. And I've seen tons and tons of people find traumatic shifts in their outlook and in how they feel just from getting involved in, in fitness and in right that kind of thing. I agree. I, I kind of want to get back to uh, this, the hiring process, because mm-hmm. um, you're clearly passionate about it. And I, th- I think you have a, a valid point. And I wanted to share an experience because we had talked about sexism and sexism inherently is just a bias. Right. You have a bias in terms of what you think a male or a female or whatever uh, is supposed to act or do or mm-hmm. those types of things. Now, command prompt. Um, we have had difficulty finding uh, people of color and women in the technical realm. Now, that's beca- one of the reasons is, is that we are specialized, right? We do Postgres and Linux, right? That, that's it. We don't, we don't have seven different databases we support or anything like that. So there's a large part of that. But interestingly enough, one of the problems that I have run into uh, our COO is a woman, and a fantastic, brilliant woman who has helped turn uh, our small little, essentially a hobby shop, right? Where, I mean, we did, we always did good work, but we didn't have necessarily you know, orderly policy process, quality controls, those types of things. And she has taken us, I mean, in, uh, you know, five years, she has doubled the size of our company. She is an absolute leader in and in, in inspiration to any woman that wants to be in tech in terms of professionalism and personal development and striving forward to become something. But here's the catch. She can email a client and email a client mm-hmm. and email a client and she'll do it six, seven times and she will be frustrated and she will come to me and she will ask, you know, do you have a different approach? I'm like, well, let me drop them an email and just see what happens. Time and time and time again, the COO, who happens to be a woman in my company, will try to contact a client for the client's benefit, and they will ignore her. And the moment I eat, and I mean the moment, like I'll get an email back post haste can we set up a call i'm sorry blah 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 and all i did was said hey man we're trying to help you out now a lot of people would say well let me guess you're emailing a man no not always now yes of course 
because of the field we're in, a lot of times is a man, and they are just completely discounting the fact that this powerful woman is running this company that is literally running their company, and they ignore her. And there, I'm not going to bring up the particular uh, culture, but there is definitely a certain cultures. There's a couple of cultures out there that it is worse with, and I will boldly state that it is not the Caucasian culture that is the problem. But more importantly, it's not always a man. Right. So my curious yeah. – go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's no uh, reason to think women are immune from sexism. We are socialized and grow up in the same society as the men do. And if a society's broader, if, if the lessons we learn in school, the lessons we learn when we're, you know, growing up and 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 coming into adulthood are that women's interests are, say, less important, or women's affinities or abilities are, are lesser, the women learn that too. I don't. Yeah, I think that that your experience is, sounds sounds very true to me because I think that social messages come to us all and we all sort of stew in it in our all in our daily lives and so that that seems very unfortunate um and and all too you know sort of familiar okay i'm just i wanted to make sure i wasn't completely off my rocker because it's a pro- oh. been a problem that's presented itself quite a bit and it, we just weren't you know um, okay, so we have a few more things here, um, and along the lines of your passion for hiring, um, you know, you brought up not putting artificial limitations like a PhD, um, which you're absolutely right. There is one in a million jobs where a data scientist needs a PhD. Uh, that's the same for same for a developer, right? A Python developer, Perl developer, Ruby developer, whatever. There's one in a million jobs where you actually need a bachelor's or a master's in computer science. In fact, I would argue that you know, unless you're doing systems programming, computer science is actually a detriment to a lot of those jobs. And I'll give you a case in point. I don't even have a high school diploma. I have a GED because you have to, right? Uh, And I only went to college for a very short period of time until the professors basically looked at me and said, you're causing problems by asking questions. Uh, In which case, I'm like, I'm done with this academic BS. I'm paying for this, which means you are actually supposed to service my needs, not the other way around. Uh, And I built myself through that thing that we discussed earlier called professional development. And now uh, I am the owner of, you know, Command Prompt, which is a very successful consultancy. And you bring up soft skills to diversify a candidate pool. And this is something that we have taken advantage of as well. And I, but I wanted, I don't want to tout us. I want to hear from another perspective. Mm-hmm. What is it, what would be an example soft skill, obviously, well, I don't consider sociological support soft skill, but what is a soft skill that you would consider uh, important to drive the future of what you do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, It comes up a lot in data science because the academic training that you might get in, you know, college or grad school will, it might, you know, hammer into you all the algorithms and the, you know, assumptions about the distribution of the data that are required to make an algorithm work and that kind of thing. But if I can put you in front of a customer and you can't string together 
you know, sentences and be conscientious and make that customer feel comfortable with our work and what we're doing. If you can't explain this technical skill that you have in human language to a regular person, I, you can't do this job. You can't do this job if you can't also translate it into the language that a customer who is not a data scientist, and almost always a customer who's not a data scientist, will be able to understand. I find it much easier to teach a new a candidate some of the statistical stuff that they don't know than to teach them how to write or communicate in a business setting. I find that harder to do myself. So that's that's. I, I I have to interject here because that's exactly our experience. Mm. Um, we have hired some amazing people, and I mean these people, they get in there and they solve problems, and our clients are like, we've been beating our head against the wall, our wall for two years on this, and they solve it, you know, in mm. a week, which is awesome and it's a great feeling. But then you ask them to write a solutions report, and it takes three people peer reviewing just to figure out where the commas are supposed to be. And I cannot stress enough that just like you just did, a key to true success is communication and especially written communication because written communication is the document of record. Mm. And if you are communicating with people, that is a document of record, no matter what, it doesn't matter if it's an email, if it's a tweet, whatever it may be. Right. Mm -hmm. And to be able to communicate in a way that is effective, that is appropriate. One of my favorite ones, one of my favorite like flaws in communication is when someone writes, this is a very unique problem. That is impossible. It is either unique <laughs> or it's not. There's no very unique, right? And it's, and I'm not saying that I'm a perfect writer, not by any stretch, but I can say that usually my writing only goes through one peer review process. Um, so I agree with you. Communication is key on all levels. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's amazing to me how many people don't realize it, how many people don't understand that being well-spoken and appropriate grammar and being able to put down words in a sentence that it doesn't need seven adjectives, an adverb, two commas, and four ands. It's literally just five words and you've said the same thing. Um, and our culture as a whole has kind of moved away from this in some ways. Over the past, say, 20 years, there's uh, been a striking, uh, violent opposition to effective communication. Like we're somehow attacking someone when we ask that they communicate at an educated level. And that's an unfortunate position. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons I've experienced this is that one of our longest team members doesn't have a computer science degree. Mm -hmm. He is one dissertation away from a PhD in English, and he's one of the best guys we've got. And he, it, not only that, he not only does he one uh, dissertation away from a PhD in English, he's a Ukrainian. He's not even in the States. Oh, 
Oh, wow. That's great. And he's a great team member and he has a fantastic communication skills. And we've obviously run into some bias issues because of their culture and our culture and how things work and things like that. But because of his communication skills, we have been over year over year over year, been able to continue to improve not only himself, but our team and the relationship with customers that he works with. And it's not necessarily because he happens to be a very competent tech. It is necessarily because he can communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you on that. Um, now, I want to switch gears because we can certainly talk about this a lot. Mm-hmm. But there's there's one part of this uh, that is actually very close to my heart, which is the democratization of data. What I would like you to do is explain to our listeners, in your mind, what is the democratization of data? That's a really, really big question, too. Um, I think there are a few areas of this that, that particularly interest me. So there's a democratization of the actual data itself, making it so that you can control the data that exists about you, and so that data about public uh, interest uh, is actually available to the public, and you're not, you know, going through FOIA requests to get data that should just be available online. I think a lot of, it, particularly cities and, and and states, are doing a really good job of making data broadly available. But what I really think is interesting, and one of the things that has has made me so passionate about Saturn Cloud is the democratization of the resources and the computational um, infrastructure to actually then turn that data into something that's going to generate value to you, to your community, to a business or whatever. Um, I think that, that we we get in, you know, there. this is a problem businesses have as well as people in, in sort of, you know, the broader ecosystem. You get all the data, you realize, oh, we needed to have data about this behavior or this part of our business or this sort of, you know, public interest issue. And then you collect all this data, you've got a big pile of data, and now what? And I think we have, um, it's, it's been a sort of, sort of expectation that a lot of the really uh, like advanced, um, really I- exciting data work can only be done at say big academic institutions or huge corporations, things like that, because they've got the quote unquote supercomputers or they've got all of the resources to all of the, the technology that needs to be used. And, and it's just not the case anymore. Now we have the ability to, go from you know sitting me sitting here at my little laptop get access to you know a cluster of 25 machines each with you know four gpus in them or something crazy like that i could do the kind of data science at scale using all the data that i have in my hands and more without having to be part of some elite institution or some high high pollutant organization and and I think that, that that really creates a few things. It makes it possible for, for complex data questions to be answered that wouldn't necessarily be asked in big, you know, organization X, Y, or Z, or university, you know, whatever. And it also means that then people who want to learn the higher, more advanced technologies that, that are going to get them the job, that are going to be in high demand in those big organizations, you can learn that without having to get the job first. 
And I think that that's a big deal. I think learning, being able to learn, say, deep learning without having to already, say, you know, be affiliated with an organization that's already doing it or begging someone for resources or something like that, being able to learn distributed computing without having to already be at, you know, IBM or someplace, you know, that is a, a huge deal for the profession. And I, I'm really excited about that. It's, it's what, what Saturn Cloud is here for. This is what we do. We make all of that compute, the resources, the workspaces, all of the hardware that you might need accessible and the rentable at affordable rates. So, so we're giving people in this, you know, free option is, is really generous in our, in, in our product such that you could learn what you need to know to scale up your skills and to get yourself that next step in your, you know, professional development and your self teaching approach to, to your career without paying anything. And, and so I, I think that the, the democratization of data is, is the first step in a larger chain of now you've got data, you've got control over your data, you've got access to data that impacts your life and is making a difference in your life. And now you have all the hardware and the, the resources and the infrastructure and the ability to learn what you need to know to make that something that's gonna be really meaningful and to make a big impact. So that's, that's kind of my perspective on the whole democratization of, of the data space, I guess. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring up something uh, random, uh, and then I want to talk about this a bit, um, because I do believe that everything happens for a reason, and we may not understand that reason, um, but there's always a price that you pay for something, and it may not necessarily a financial price. It may be a physical price, emotional price. It might be something that happens later in your life. But for the past, and I'm not kidding, I have pictures of this as we've been talking, for the past 20 minutes, there has been a butterfly on my palm. Wow. I didn't put it there. Yeah, I didn't put it there. I even tried to shake it off. And it's like, no, brother, I am here. He just flew off and then came back. And he is now on my left hand where he was on my right hand previously. He is a stubborn little dude. Um, I know that's completely random. Um, but that's one of the joys of, you know, doing this podcast outdoors uh, is that we can have a conversation that embraces everything that's happening in the world. And that is something that's happening in my world right now is this butterfly <laughs> just sitting on my hand. Um, but I want to go back to data democratization because mm -hmm. you, you brought up something and you brought up Saturn Cloud, which I think is good. I, I think that, and we can talk about them in a moment. Um, but I want to talk about something that you brought up because of your sociology background. So now we're, we have all this data. We have enabled users any user to be able to manipulate and analyze and uh, calculate on this data and determine what and the answer to whatever question they're asking. Mm -hmm. And understand I am a huge privacy uh, advocate. I'm a huge First Amendment advocate. Uh, I'm actually an advocate of all of our rights, uh, not just, you know, the ones that, the, you know, whichever politician is in power wants to embrace. Um, and we have a problem in that too much data in the wrong hands is inadvertently a bad thing. And I'll, it can be empowering. It can be greatly empowering. But I'll give you an example. Once upon a time, there was a former celebrity 
who read a flawed and now debunked scientific study and talked about this study. And it created the anti-vax movement, mm. at least the public anti-vax movement. Now, there is a, a theological anti-vax movement, but that's, that's a different discussion. I'm talking about the average Jane or Joe who follows this celebrity, who doesn't understand that this celebrity is not an expert. One of my favorite is the mommy bloggers who refuse to cite their sources, mm. right? It's just this is fact. Right. Even though and you you'll ask them, like, what's your source? And they don't even know how to cite. Right. Um, but in this particular instance, it's particular. It is relevant because of the pandemic. In that now I do have concerns about the vaccine just because it was so quickly produced. OK, I don't have a concern with vaccines in general, but we're talking about something that came about in less than a year that would normally take four Okay, that is a to me a concern, but that is not to suggest you should not get vaccinated, not in any stretch of the imagination. But what you do have is this problem where people are getting on their podiums, and especially say a celebrity who has no idea what they're talking about, but has a huge following, and now we have a movement that threatens literally the global population. How do we handle that problem? Because that's a data problem. It's literally a public equal access to data problem. See, I think that's a data. And it's a sociological problem. Yeah, it's it's a sociological. It's a data literacy problem, and I think that that's uh, you may even you know come into the area of our education. I actually taught research literacy at DePaul University for for one semester, and it was a very interesting experience because I you know was teaching primarily pre-med students at that time. And um, and one of the things that, that I really like thought about a lot while I was teaching this course was that I want, even if these students take this class and decide, never mind, I'm not gonna become a doctor, never mind, I don't wanna go into this at all. I always wanted to make sure that I was preparing them to just be an informed participant in society and in the community that they, that they live in. Um, and that means being able to understand technical information, but it also, I think, means, um, I think there's, there's a lot around, around the way that we consume data that could be better, especially as laypersons and not as people, you know, interested in data science as a profession, but in, as in, you know, you know, grandma or, you know, your neighbor down the street kind of individuals. I think we could do a much better job giving people the, um, the, the sort of baseline training in statistics and in what statistics means, not by, you know, throwing Greek symbols in their faces, but in explaining and talking about the intuition of statistics. Um, I think we could do a better job in, in scholarly writing about math and about things that are based on probabilities and statistics, because it, it's, um, it's a, it's a multi-pronged problem. I don't think necessarily that I would, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go in for reducing the amount of data or information that is, that is made available. I would go in for uh, thinking carefully about how we present math information and public health information in the you know, general sense. It's, it, it, it's interesting that we come back to this because I also took some classes in the public health school while I was in graduate school because I was interested in 
getting um, getting that that perspective on uh, you know in particular on mental health because that was my my general focus, but on the medical sociology sort of field abuts public health in a lot of ways, and the idea of how to communicate about health and about the questions of of health sort of recommendations and you know translate science into forms that are accessible to the members of the community. That's a big part of the public health sort of uh, ethos. And it's a big question that they spend a lot of time as a, as a whole profession thinking about and, and trying to, to figure out. Um, and so I think we could uh, we could learn a lot from, from public health in terms of general communication about statistical odds and what things really mean when you have little data or no data or only you know a very biased sample of data and that kind of thing and what inferences can be made and what can't um i think i think that it is a problem though i think that we definitely don't have um the informed and accessible voice of uh, communication about statistics and data and data science and that whole thing. We don't have we don't have uh, a seat in the public discourse in the way that we should, and that's not necessarily because the public is is not listening, but we're not speaking. I don't think is as in the way that we should be, um, and it's it's difficult to to know how to sort of break through that gap if. In, it, it, it's it's hard it's really it's really hard but i but i completely agree with you that we by abdicating responsibility for things like communicating about what statistics really mean and what data really represents and what it can and can't do we uh, lead to situations like this anti-vax thing and people failing to um like people falling into hucksters trap because no one was contradicting that and no one was out there speaking to uh to a different perspective it, it's easy for hucksters to get that that sort of media coverage because they can be you know sort of excitement and flash and glam because they're not tied to facts or data but yeah it's we as as a discipline, as data scientists, I do think this is a thing we should do. We should we should care a lot about, it, even in your you know, talking to your family and friends about you know over the dinner table or you know over Zoom in these days, about what data really means and what you know if they they read an article, giving giving some time over to thinking and talking about that with them, um, and trying to to spread that information rather than just assuming. There's no way that grandma could ever really understand what this study really represents. We we could we could do that. We could we could do a better job with that. I think um, I could certainly. Do so that. what you're suggesting, what and I can hear the exasperation in your voice mm -hmm. actually about this. You've clearly uh, have put a lot of effort into thought in terms of solving this problem, of which there's it's it's a difficult problem to solve. Mm -hmm. But what you are really saying is get off the couch, be educated, educate your family and friends, and try and make educated decisions. I think that's a, a responsibility of all citizens to to take, you know, that uh, step to to being curious and, and trying to um, 
to find the information that's going to help you make better decisions. Um, I know that not everyone has the same access to that information. Not everyone has the luxury of the time to go out there and look for that information given just, you know, people's different life circumstances. But if you do, I think, I think it's, I think our education system should encourage that. I think you should get that, like learning how to learn sort of framework in the school system and that kind of thing. And that I think would help a lot too. But yeah, I, you're right. It's, it's hard. There's not one good answer, but the, the smallest step we can make is at least trying to, to help it out in our own, um, you know, families and local communities. I would agree with that. I mean, it, it's a, it's interesting. People don't think about how, okay, you talked to your sister or your sister talked to her husband. Her husband talked to the coworker. The coworker worker talked to her husband, you know, and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you end up in an environment where you have a whole lot of people that know the correct information, or even if there's not a correct, the term isn't correct, because sometimes the answer is, is multifaceted, but at least have an insight so that they're not necessarily just following the advice of whoever has the most Instagram followers. Um, okay. So, you know, we've been talking for a while now and I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, but I do want to give an opportunity for you to discuss or for both of us to discuss Saturn cloud a little bit. Um, now my understanding is that from reading the website as well as your communication during this conversation, Saturn cloud is kind of for you know, a lot of the people that are going to listen to this are, uh, Postgres people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm going to use the term RDS. Do you know what RDS is? Relational database system. Uh, well, actually, that was silly. Yes, you're absolutely right. Sorry. But <laughs> in terms of in terms of Amazon, what RDS is, I should have been more clear. Um, RDS it it is remote database system. It's their managed database service, right? Where basically you put a coin in the slot, they give you a port, uh, and you can connect to Postgres or you can connect to MySQL. Don't ever do that. Use Postgres, um, <laughs> and you can you know manipulate your data. And it sounds to me what was Saturn Cloud is, is I put my quarter in and I can upload a data set or, uh, or possibly choose among existing data sets and then analyze that data in a multi-compute fashion where you already have the hardware and essentially the cloud set up. So it's kind of like a, a data science cloud. Sure. So yeah, let me, uh, your, your, your perspective, your, your, your sort of metaphor there is, is on the right track. So let me, let me give it, give the example that I, that I can sort of talk you through. So say you've got your data on AWS, your data lives out there, it's on the cloud, that's great. Um, you could then get on Saturn Cloud and connect directly to your AWS, um, say your S3 bucket or your Yes, or wherever you're keeping your data, you can if you if you can access your data through a CLI, you can access it in Saturn Cloud directly. And then you have access to Jupyter notebooks for Python. You could use Python scripting. You can do uh, cluster compu- computation with Dask. And we use EC2 instances, but we abstract away all the fuss of setting up, figuring out which one goes where, figuring out what size you need. We have documentation and, and tutorials and helpful steps for all of this stuff. And then if you want to, after you've done your data science work, you maybe have built a model or maybe you've, you've produced some 
graphs or some analysis, you can deploy that. So then we have a system where you could deploy your model so that then people can hit it with an API and get predictions back, for example. You could deploy a dashboard. We have a number of different open source dashboarding tools that we support and help people to use. So you can make your- Let me, let me interject uh, for our listeners, what would be the, an example of a couple of the open source dashboards? Oh, uh, let's see. We have Voila. We have, um, there's another one that there's a name I can't remember all of a sudden. But Grafana, maybe? Uh, no, we don't do Grafana at this time, but um, we have anything that you could run inside Python, basically. So for okay. that, we end up having uh, a couple of different kinds. So dashboards. No, it, it's okay. Let's, let's go ahead and continue. I was just curious just for, because we are a predominantly open source friendly uh, podcast. And oh, just run it in Python. We can show you. Panel is another one we have. Well, as, those are the two that, that people tend to use the most. Um, but if you can um, run it on an EC2 instance, more or less, we can, we can help you to play that in some way through the system. And then that can be directly linked to the data that you have in S3 or wherever you're keeping your data. Okay. Um, and do you use the same, in, you know, thinking from a business perspective or even just even a consumer perspective for that matter, uh, do you use a similar pricing model? Is it by the hour, by the day, by the month, by the resource? So we have a couple of different angles on that. For our base level um, free pricing schedule, if you get 10 hours of CPU compute and three hours of GPU compute for free every month, you can use clusters up to a three, cluster, three worker cluster um, in that plan. And then it re every month. So every month you get a new uh, bunch of free uh, hours to use in whatever way you like. If you like to move up to the paid plan, then you uh, then that's when you have to input a credit card and then we charge on a per minute basis the same way that Amazon EC2 instances are charged. So it's you pay only for what you use and we charge a, uh, a percentage on top of the EC2 price. So whatever the um, AWS website lists is the EC2 prices at this particular moment, take those prices. And then on our website, we have a, a table that shows markup that we on each of those and that's the pricing model for enterprise we have a whole well, wait you you're transparent about your markup yes yes that is a part awesome. of our plan good yes. for you you can look it up on the website we're happy to, to tell you how much you would be paying if you decided to use our product because we think that that's important <laughs> it, I, I would agree i think it's fantastic i mean one of the things that um I'll be honest, we don't do it anymore because the industry just moved away from it. Uh, but it's one of these things where one of the ways that command prompt used to differentiate itself was that all of our competitors, which by the way, most of them are gone now. Um, they don't, they say, please call us for an estimate. Right. It's, we would just tell you, this hard. is exactly how much we charge. Right. And there's a pricing um, link at the bottom of the page. So just feel free. To SaturnCloud.io. Yes. We have an enterprise product as well. I, my, my, my boss would, would, would be unhappy if I didn't mention that we have enterprise products of, of custom installs for, um, for, for large enterprises that want to use our product. And but might want you. to use the product. No, they might want to use the product in a more confidential way as well. Right. Would probably they want, make them they want feel to better. Have, have their own. It will be installed in your AWS account, and you would have complete control over the whole thing. That's the idea. Okay.
Awesome. All right, Stephanie. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. And if you have two, uh, I'm going to have Lindsay, who is our producer, uh, contact you again. I'd like to unwrap some of the more specific points that we've talked about, Mm -hmm. Uh, specifically around the hiring process. uh, I think that we could have a nice, long conversation that might turn into just some demonstrable ideas for listeners that would help them be better hiring personnel. I'd love to talk about that. and I think I think that there, especially if we can find some data around it, which I would leave to you as a data scientist, mm-hmm. um, that we could possibly share in advance so that we can have a real, uh, you know, meaty, concrete discussion about how we can help people make better decisions about hiring professionals, not hiring certifications. Thank you for being on. We, you've been a wonderful guest and we enjoyed having you. Awesome. Have a lovely time. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt Founder and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt, Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.